Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, we're picking back up in our series, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, while you're turning there, let me remind you or invite you to two different things. Uh, first, uh, today, after the third service, uh, so we have one more service after this, and after that service, we're having a short class on baptism. Uh, myself and David, uh, we'll, it'll be right in this room, so if you want to go get <clears throat> coffee here or coffee somewhere else or lunch and come back, uh, we would love for you to join us. And we're going to walk through uh, biblically how the Bible lays out baptism. If you've been thinking about it, contemplating that, wanting to know more about what the scriptures say, and we'll follow up that with a, a short Q&A afterwards. It won't take too much time, but you are welcome to join us if you'd like to do that right here in this room. Now, in addition to that, next week we have what we call starting point, and that'll take place after, uh, after the third service as well. That includes a meal, uh, and, and in addition to a meal, the child care is taken care of as well. And at starting point, you'll hear from myself, uh, some of the other staff, the elders, walk through the history of our church, our beliefs, uh, we'll answer questions. How do you get plugged in? Where can you serve? What are the needs around here? Uh, is this the church family for you? And what does it look like to place membership? All we ask is that you would register ahead of time. So whether you've been here uh, most of your life and you feel like, I think I already know New Hope, but some things have changed and I really want to get back on board with some things, or you're new to the church and you want to know what it's like to, to live here with us at New Hope, uh, just register ahead of time so we can prep for you and we would love to have you. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in this morning. Father, we, we are humbled to be here because we have this opportunity as brothers and sisters in Christ to gather around and hear from your word. And so our prayer this morning is simple. Father, would, would you speak to us? And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. My kids are fans, uh, big fans, of a group of YouTube stars named Dude Perfect. Now, many of you, show of hands, you've heard of Dude Perfect. Uh, many of you may not have. This is a group of friends, uh, that, uh, Christian guys, that went to college together. And as uh, roommates decided they wanted to make some fun videos of doing trick shots. And so they would do all kinds of different things. Uh, just making videos just for, the, for them. And they'd take basketballs and shoot them out of a helicopter and try to make it into a hoop. I mean, they just do all kinds of fun stuff, frisbees, throwing them all over the world, really, uh, and make these great videos. Well, on this YouTube uh, channel, they've built up. It went, just kind of blew up, and now they're a worldwide phenomenon. And you can go to shows and, like, watch different things that they're doing. And they do a YouTube channel. And on this channel, there's this show they do. And one of the segments in the show we love. It's called Stereotypes. And they'll take different areas of life, and they'll show you the different stereotypes of the different people in them. And so they have like a basketball one where they do the traditional ball hog, the guy who's never going to pass you the ball, and then they'll make it really funny, and my kids are cracking up laughing. And every time in that segment, there's a shorter segment that we can't wait until they're going to reveal it, and it's called the Rage Monster. We love the Rage Monster. Uh, because he comes out, a guy that has no self-control, and he flips out, which is stereotypical in most areas. You're going to have that guy that, okay, here he goes again. He's lost his cool. Well, I want you to see a glimpse of this just to get an idea. This is the golf stereotype rage monster. Those of you who play golf will appreciate this. No! 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 Ah! Never playing golf again! Every time I'm going to laugh at that. It's hilarious because it's true. Like, I know that guy. I play golf with him all the time. I came across another video uh, this week that for, it illustrated what it's like when you have no self-control. You dog owners will appreciate this one. 
Unbelievable. No. What are you doing? <laughs> so now I can't even put stuff up there? I'm looking right at you. <laughs> the look, I mean, the expression on the dog's face. We have a golden retriever and we could make that video. Uh, as funny as these are, right? You've also experienced the other side of what it's like to, to lose self-control, right? To not have control and you've probably been on the receiving end of somebody who lost control of their emotions, their words, their actions, and you've dealt with the ripple effect of that in your life. I read in the last two weeks, I've read three stories in the news of what takes place when somebody loses control on the road. Three instances where people were killed because of road rage all around our country. Somebody driving and inadvertently gets cut off and they think that you have impeded on my right to be here. How dare you? And they just snap because they think they've been that offended and they end up taking a life and a young husband buries his young wife because somebody couldn't control themselves. See, self-control can be humorous, but it can also be painful and it's very real. And if you're like me, you've been in those moments where you've felt it even in yourself. You felt it well up where you've got to the end of your rope and you feel, I don't know how I'm going to keep control of my emotions, my words, my actions in this moment. I feel like I'm going to lose it. I feel like I'm getting to the end of my rope. You felt that well up inside of you, much like I have in my life. You've had those experiences where it just felt like, I don't know how. And, and what's taking place in that moment is these competing values in your heart. Like, I know what I should do, and I understand what's right in this situation. But man, in this moment, I'm also feeling that I need to give in to this. And, and they're competing, and it kind of feels at times, if you're honest, if you're like me, that it rips you apart almost. Well, this understanding of the difficulty of uh, experiencing and, and showing self-control, restraint in certain moments, really points to a clear understanding of the biblical view of psychology. Now, hang with me. I say that, and you're like, where are you going? Just, just hang with me here. Here's what I mean. When the Bible speaks of uh, the heart, it never divides the human being into head and heart or our mind and our emotions. Actually, when you do a close reading of the scriptures, it could be confusing at times because the way the Bible speaks of the heart. It'll say things like, think from your heart. It's because when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not speaking of it the way that we typically think of it. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's saying, hey, this is the center of your personality. This is where your core commitments and your trusts all reside. And what flows from there, these things that you're committed to, these things that you value, these things that you love, are a result of what's been placed there, what your values are, what's most important to you. So the decisions that you make, right, whether or not you control yourself, the things you give yourself to are all a result, really, of what's taking place, what's valuable, what's important to you. So here's the thing. If you're in your heart, you don't have one overarching, powerful commitment that all of the other things that you value and love in life fall underneath, then you're going to be divided. Your heart will be ripped into two. Your heart's going to feel like it needs to go in multiple different directions because there's not this one overarching value, this overarching commitment that is more important than the other ones. Which means, if that's the case, then freedom and self-control are really about rightly ordering your loves, rightly ordering your commitments and the things that you trust the most in your life. It's about showing that kind of restraint, which also means then that the lack of self-control or losing control is about not rightly ordering your loves and the things that are most important. 
Let me give you an example this way. If you've spent much time around me or uh, with my family, you will pick up very quickly that I have a very deep love for and a very real appreciation of donuts. I really do. And I don't say that just lightly. It's a real thing. It's a problem <laughs> that I have. <laughs> when we go on vacation, we're going to find a unique donut shop. Uh, when my kids on Friday morning wake up, you can ask any one of them, what's Friday mornings with your dad? It's like, dad's going to get donuts every Friday. I want up the schools on donuts with dads. I'm like, we're not doing that. We're going we're gonna to do it way better. And go tell your friends they need to come with us. All right, because donuts with dads really happens over here, not over there, okay? And so donuts are this really important thing. I love donuts. I love all of them. In fact, someone, I was like, man, someone had, Don Lamb does this thing where he meets with a group of, of guys right now. Some of you in here are, and every time you know when it's over, Rob's going to be coming in the side door because he's got a Persian donut from Titus set aside for me, right? Donuts are a big thing. On the same token, I really value my health. I do. I like feeling healthy. I like feeling like I'm not dying. I don't know about you, but that's important to me as well. And when you think about it, according to popular psychology today, what would I be told? Well, go after your heart. Chase after your heart, whatever you want. Well, in my heart is a deep love for donuts and a deep love for my health. And if I don't rightly prioritize what's important, what happens is I'm torn both. Those things don't work well together. Right, let me give you another example. You want a successful career. You want to do well and achieve success. And that's a valuable thing. But on the flip side, you also want your family, and you want deep relationships, and you want health in the home. Which means if you go over here and you totally give yourself to your career and all of the things that you want to pursue with your life, and you put all of your energy, all of your effort into achieving things and having success, inevitably what's going to happen is on the other side of that, the other thing that you claim that you really love and value as much, you're going to realize that those two things, you can't have ultimate success with the career. It doesn't mean you can't do well, but you can't devote all of yourself to the career and all of yourself to the family, and you feel torn. You feel like it's pulling you apart. This is what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. If you remember, when we walked through chapter 8, the apostle Paul was walking through an issue that was taking place in the church, mainly that there was meat that was sacrificed to false gods. And the Christians, in the, like, hey, are we allowed to eat this or not? We have freedom in Christ, in our freedom. And Paul says, hey, that meat's irrelevant because the God that it's sacrificed to doesn't even exist. And so you have complete and total freedom to eat whatever you want. You want to eat the meat? Eat the meat. You have that freedom. However... However, if you have a brother or sister in Christ who just can't seem to get past it, whose conscience is too sensitive to the fact that that meat was sacrificed to a false god, then you have a calling placed on your life to place their needs over and above your own. And the calling that's placed on your life is to make sure that you give up your freedom to eat whatever you want to eat for their ability to grow and mature. So we sacrifice our freedoms, is what he says. He's saying, I love God, and my deep love for God is more important to, it's overarching my love for meat. And some of us, that's your thing, your donut. Mine's donuts, yours might be a bacon cheeseburger, whatever. But what happens is when we don't place it underneath the lordship of Jesus, it elevates to a place that it was never intended to be, and now you're torn. This is why we hear in the Bible, you cannot serve both God and money. They can't both occupy the same place in your heart. One needs to come underneath the other. And the lordship of Jesus over the top of all of these other things means that your freedom that you do have, you're willing to sacrifice it for the sake of somebody else. 
Now, as you get to chapter 9, he's going to do the same thing in the first 18 verses of chapter 9. We're going to study 19 to 24. Let me summarize the first 18 verses. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a very similar issue where he has the freedom to enjoy what he's been blessed with. And the Christians in Corinth, they're wondering, what is the deal here, Paul? Why is it that you don't accept payment for the ministry work that you do? Why don't you charge and make money from the work that you're doing in ministry? In those days, a traveling teacher or philosopher would have made money in a a variety of different ways. They would have stayed with well-to-do people. They would have charged for their services. They would have begged or they would have worked a trade. And the Apostle Paul, as it happens in the city of Corinth, isn't doing that. And it's throwing these Christians off in Corinth. And in verses 1 through 18, the Apostle Paul will lay out very clearly that he has the freedom to charge. If I want to charge for that, I can charge for that. That's not the issue. I know that I'm allowed to charge and make a living off of the ministry I do. In fact, when he would write to Timothy, when he was doing work in Ephesus, he wrote these words in chapter 5, verse 17 of 1 Timothy. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. That includes financial, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. So the the Apostle Paul is just clear. Like, I have freedom. I know. I have the freedom. I'm allowed to charge for the ministry work that I do. But it's fascinating because when you study the life of the Apostle Paul, he doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, any city that Paul was particularly in, he never charged for ministry work. He would receive benefits and help from other churches, but never the one he was particularly serving in that moment. You see this with Philippi. The church in Philippi would would financially support the Apostle Paul, but not when he's in Philippi. And on top of that, when the Apostle Paul did receive financial support, he never demanded it. And he... And these Christians, they can't really understand, why is it that you wouldn't do that? You have to take care of yourself. You have, why are you not willing to do that? And the Apostle Paul in verses 19 to, 20, uh, 19 to 27 is going to lay out two things. First, why? Why is it that I don't do that? I'll tell you why I don't charge. I'll tell you why I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols when I have certain friends over to my home. I'll tell you why I'm willing to sacrifice all of the freedoms that I have for the benefit of other people. I'll, I'll tell you my Why? Because that's what motivates everything that I do. And then I'll tell you the how. How do you go about doing this in your own life? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, he writes these words. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I become like not like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So he tells us his why right away. Six different times in the verses I just read to you, the apostle Paul lays out that his number one goal is to win as many people to Christ as possible. And so Paul, when you look at what is most important to him, he's going to tell you it's, it's kind of twofold. To those who are outside of Christ, I want to do whatever it takes to make sure that they can hear the gospel. So I'm willing to remove any kind of uh, unnecessary things that are in the way that are blocking their ability to see Jesus. And I'm willing to do that even if it involves something I have the freedom to enjoy in my own life. I'm willing to let go of that because I want that person to see the gospel and I want them to see it clearly. I love those people. On the other side, if they are in Christ, Paul would say, I'm willing to forsake my freedoms for those who are already in Christ so that they will grow and mature into more devoted followers of Jesus. 
Here's the principle. This is what he's been saying the whole time in, in 1 Corinthians. I mean, I think this is the church at Corinth's biggest issue. And the Apostle Paul is telling them what the solution is. Every single person that you encounter in your life is one of two things. They are either a follower of Jesus or they're not. Which means you interact with people on those two different levels. So I, I've done this before and I didn't get the picture. Forgive me. I want you to track with me. And if I lose you, I'm sorry. Here's, here's the, what, the image I want to give you. Picture a cross. If you were taking notes, you can draw it as I describe it. Just a, a cross. You just picture a cross like that. That cross represents Jesus. Which Paul says is the overarching, number one, most important thing to me. I want to make much of Jesus. Now you draw arrows, some pointing to the cross, some pointing away from the cross. That represents every person that you'll interact with in your entire life. Many of them are hostile and they point away from, the, from Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. But you interact with them at work. You interact with them with your kids' sports teams. Your kids are going to school with those families. You find yourself rubbing shoulders with people that are very much against the faith that you proclaim. On the flip side, you have other people that the arrow's pointing to that cross. That represents everybody who's in Christ in your life. Those are the other Christians in your life. What Paul's saying here is my number one goal in life is I look at that image. And those who are pointed away from Jesus, I want to shorten that arrow as much as possible. And I want it to turn around and point to Jesus. I want to lead them to Christ. And that is one of the most important things to me. The arrows that are already pointing to the cross, I want those arrows to get longer, meaning I want them to get deeper and more fulfilled in their relationship with Jesus, and I want to do whatever it takes to help them mature. And what Paul is saying is, I know I have a responsibility, and that the way that I live my life and the choices that I make in my life have the potential to lead people closer to or further away from Jesus. And this is what he lays out here. So my number, my why is that no matter who I interact with, after they're done being around me, I want them to know Jesus better than they did before. That's the number one goal. That's what motivates everything. Why can I sacrifice my freedoms? Because when my freedom gets in someone's way of seeing Jesus, I don't need it. Because it falls under the lordship of Jesus in my life. Now, I studied this with my discipleship group this week. I had a group at our home, and we sat around, and we began to talk through what this actually looks like when you apply it in your everyday life, because we're not worried about meat sacrificed to idols. We think more about Christians and, and alcohol or Christians and all, exposure to all kinds of different things. And so we talked through that. And at the conclusion of our conversation, one of the people in my group, Libby Kendall, she asked a wonderful question. She said, or made a, a wonderful observation. She said, based on what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, what I'm seeing is this. There's an enormous amount of pressure and how am I supposed to live with that amount of pressure on my life that everybody who sees my life may or may not draw closer to Jesus? They may, I may lead them into sin based on the choices that I'm making. All these people, I'm responsible for everyone that's looking at me. That's a pressure that feels so heavy. I thought, man, that's, that's beautiful. That's a brilliant observation. And maybe after studying this, you feel the same way. You feel like, oh, when Paul says, become all things to all people, and you better not cause somebody else to trip up or sin, I don't know that I can do that. That kind of a weight on my shoulders is just too much to handle. Everyone's watching me all the time. That just feels heavy. How am I supposed to live like a Christian in that kind of an environment? What am I supposed to do? It's really important to remember this, that when it comes to ministry, it's always relational for the Apostle Paul. It's always relational, meaning God has entrusted you to a certain group of people in a certain place, and you do have a responsibility in that environment. You're not responsible for every person in the world. 
but you are responsible for the people who God has placed you in relationship with. This is why we call it a church family. This is the hardest part of it. I think the most difficult part of all of this is to lean into those relationships, to not just come to church and sit in a seat and stare at a stage on Sunday morning, but to do the hard work of leaning in. And here's what happens. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he knew these people. He hadn't just heard about them or read about them in some sort of a book or a letter that had been reported to him. When he's writing this letter, he's picturing their faces. He's remembering experiences that he'd had with these people. He has this deep love for this people. He's not just writing this to write it. He sits down and he begins to pen why it's important to put your freedoms aside for other people to grow because that's what he did for them. And he loves them deeply. This is what happens when church is church. You lean into the relationships. And the more I lean into the relationship, the more I get to know the people around me, here's what I learn. I learn their weaknesses. I learn the things that trip them up. I learn the parts that I need to be sensitive to. Why? Because I get to know them. And as I get to know them and I learn those weaknesses, what happens is I learn the weakness, not just about the weakness, but I learn the weakness. And now all of a sudden, I have empathy. Why? Because I love them. I know their story. I've lived life next to these people. Now I have empathy toward that weakness. And now when the thought of giving up one of my freedoms so that they can continue to grow comes up, I got no problem with it. Why? Because I love them. Because I know them. Because I'm in community with these people. And so the sacrifice, my freedom, becomes a lot easier. Why? Because the most important thing is that that person would grow closer to Jesus. That's hard work. But I want you to think about this. Think about how much easier it is to sacrifice for the people that you really do know as opposed to the people you don't. I'm not saying you don't sacrifice for people you don't know. You should. You should continue to do that. But it's a lot easier when you know them. My younger brother, he's not following Jesus the way that I prayed that he would. When he calls me, there's very little I wouldn't do for him. He calls me, he says, I got this problem. I need to think through this. How do I do this? There's very little I'm not going to stop to help him get. Why? Because that's my brother. I've known him his whole life. I love him. We have been through all of life together, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. We don't see everything eye to eye. That doesn't mean I'm not going to serve him and give up my own freedoms so that he might draw closer to the Lord. See, when you know people, when you lean in, you get to know their story, you get to know their life, the Apostle Paul says then empathy sets in. And when empathy sets in, sacrificing freedom for someone to be able to grow becomes a lot easier in your life. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on here and continues to describe what he's willing to do for that. And it would be easy to read this passage and come to the conclusion that there was nothing off limits for Paul. I mean, Paul would do anything it took to lead somebody to Jesus. And that gets people excited. There's nothing we won't do for it. But a closer reading of the text tells you this. There are some limits. Paul is not instituting what I would call situational ethics, meaning you can change your stance on things based on the situation that you're in. Notice, Paul would never have wrote, to the adulterer, I become like an adulterer. To the drunk, I become like a drunk. No, there are limits. What he is not saying is that you just do whatever. This is why I cringe when I hear some people say this sometimes. They'll say, we'll do anything short of sin to win somebody to Jesus. And I think to myself, okay, I get the intention behind that. I do. And I get the motives. I understand. I think that's great. But when I read what Paul writes about sin, I don't see him ever saying you should cozy up as close to it as you possibly can so as to accomplish some things. In fact, I see the opposite. The Apostle Paul says when it comes to sin, get away from it as quickly as you can. Run from it. Paul was not willing to get close to sin to accomplish this mission. Let me illustrate for you this way. My wife has a, just the biggest case of arachnophobia of anyone I've ever known. Okay, Like it's not even funny. I don't even joke with her about it. I learned early on. It's, wow, can't go there <laughs> uh, at all. My kids, can we prank mommy? You can do a lot of things, but if you do that, I'm going to spank you. <laughs> like, don't do that. 
uh, you cannot, you cannot do that. She hates it. I remember early on in our marriage, I got a call. I was at, uh, we were living in Orlando and I was at a church plant there. And she said, hey, you got to come home to the apartment we were living in because I saw a spider in our room. Okay. And I've closed the door and I'm not going in there until you get home. Now for her, a big spider is like, can I even find it? Right. <laughs> so I get home, I walk in the apartment. <clears throat> She's got a towel shoved underneath the door because if that spider's in that room, it is not coming out. Right. You know what my wife never does when she sees a spider? She never says, how close can I get to this thing before it's actually going to be a problem for me? She never says, oh, that's not, no big deal. No big deal. I can get as close, the spider webs right here, no big deal. I'm, I'm good. You know what she does? <clears throat> she runs. Full speed, get out of here, save everybody that you can. We're out of this place, right? She wants nothing to do with spiders. That's how the apostle Paul views sin. He never says, how close can I get to sinning so that I can accomplish my goals and if I can get close enough to sin without it actually hurting me, I think I'll be all right. No, he says, stay away from sin altogether. So what is he saying when he says, I've become all things to all people? What he's not saying is I'm willing to sin. So what is he saying? He's saying in the morally gray areas of life, in areas like eating meat sacrificed to idols, in areas like financial support when it comes to ministry, the Apostle Paul will bend over backwards to make sure that the non-Christians in the community that he is living in see clearly the message of the gospel. And he's not willing to sacrifice that for anything. He's not willing to allow anything to stop him from doing that. So these areas where it's okay to have an opinion. And he does, uh, he does never assume, he never assumes that in the community or in the society or in the culture that everything's inherently evil. That's a mistake we make. The apostle Paul never says in the culture, everything's evil. Everything. No, but what he does do is he takes the gospel and he applies it to every situation he finds himself in. So he walks into a certain cultural moment. He's going to say, okay, how best do I take the gospel and apply it here? Oh, these are really intellectually intelligent people, high on education. So I'm going to take the gospel, never changing the message of the gospel, but I'm going to change my method to make sure that I meet these people where they're at. Never compromising the content of the gospel. He comes over here and he says, okay, this place is a, a place that's suffering with socioeconomics. And so I need to take it and we're going to take the gospel and we're going to apply it to their situation. What's going on? We're going to take the gospel, pure in its content, and apply it to their situation. This is how the apostle Paul would live over and over again. And here's the point. For him, throughout the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, he's trying to illustrate that this is, this is something that's relational for them. The most important thing is that in these areas where you're continuing to live next to people that are struggling, it's a relational thing. So how do we do it? How is it that I'm supposed to live and live out these areas of my life, these areas that are difficult for me, these areas that I can feel myself wanting to compete in these two different things and give in to one or the other? How is it that I'm supposed to submit these things under the lordship of Jesus so I don't lose control? And we need this, don't we? It's not just anger. We lose control with lust and with greed and with the way that we treat other people. All kinds of areas where we allow certain things to creep up to a place they were never intended to be. And so they're asking, okay, Paul, if that's how we're supposed to live in relationship with one another, how am I supposed to get this thing back underneath the lordship of Jesus? And he says, oh, I can tell you how to do that. And he continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race all human runners run? But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. And we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. 
And I don't fight like a boxer that's just beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. The Apostle Paul says, I go into strict training. That's what it says in the NIV. Yours might say self-control, self-discipline. I discipline myself. That's the same word in the original language that he uses in Galatians chapter 5 when he details the work of the Spirit. Two things about that. One, you're not able to do any of this by yourself. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You can't just will yourself to discipline. But point number two, you have a role to play. And when he says that I discipline myself, what he's saying, it's a, it's a Greek word. It's two different words. It means ego kartia. That's what kratia is what it means. In, it, it's the Greek word. Two different words. It means self-command in English. So he says what discipline really is, it's about self-command. It's about I control my life. I have to make decisions. The best definition of uh, self-control that I came across was this, the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent. So in that moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the clarity that I get from God's word, I have the ability to choose what's most important in this moment over what I want to do or what I feel like I have the right to do or what I'm privileged to do or what I have the freedom to do. In this moment, what's the most important thing for my overarching purpose in life, which is what? To make much of Jesus in every single situation I find myself in. If that's my goal, what's the most important choice for me to make in this moment? And self-control through God's spirit gives you the ability to choose to do that. You've heard me say this phrase numerous times over the years, and I'll repeat it again. Most areas of your life, discipline precedes joy. So you might be sitting thinking, like, hey, sacrificing everything for other people, I don't see the joy in that. Like, I'm missing it. Like, I'm not seeing how I can enjoy my life if I'm constantly having to give everything up for other people. Discipline precedes joy. The discipline of doing that leads you to the joy of the experience, and until you've actually done that, you're never going to understand it. Think about the other areas of your life. Discipline preceding joy. You want the discipline of being healthy, you need, or the joy of being healthy, you need the discipline of eating less donuts, right? I want to be healthy, ah, I got to watch it. Can't eat all of Titus's donuts, okay? You want the discipline of being financially secure, or the joy of being financially secure, you need the discipline of being financially responsible. You want the joy of having a deep, mature Christian faith, then you need to have the discipline of yielding more and more of your life under the Lordship of Jesus. It's not easy, but when it happens, you begin to learn to grow and experience the joy you cannot get otherwise. I thought to myself, how do I close this out? I struggled. I really did. I struggled. How do you like bring this home? And I don't, I really don't mean to use this in any other way, but to say, look at, I learned so much from this experience about what it means to put the needs of other people over and above my own freedoms. A few years back, my family was headed to Florida on vacation my wife and the kids, and then Sarah's parents, uh, David and Marty, were coming with us too. And we were doing this big trip to Florida to go see his parents, David's parents, grandparents, and, and go to Disney World. And it was just going to be this time to disconnect. And when I disconnect from here, I typically turn off my email, and you guys can't usually get a hold of me unless there's an absolute emergency. I love it that way. All right? Uh, and I take off on this trip. Well, we're driving down, and we get to Georgia. We stop at a friend's home. We're all going to stay the night. I get up early the next day. Uh, to go get uh, food from heaven at Chick-fil-A and bring it back to everybody for breakfast. Uh, and as I'm coming back, I get a phone call. And it's uh, one of those frantic phone calls where it's hard to make out what the person's saying. And it was from my best friend, uh, a person who's like a brother to me, my closest friend in the world. And I can't understand what he's saying. He's just kind of screaming and crying. And it's not characteristic. And he just keeps saying, Greg, Greg is dead. Greg is dead. Well, Greg was his brother, who was a dear friend of mine. Greg's dead. Greg's dead. 
I had to pull over. Not had to do that many times in my life, but I couldn't see because I was weeping. And so I just had to pull over and cry. And now I'm torn. I need to get back to Indiana. I need to get back to my friend. But I'm on this trip with my family and they need to know that the vacation and dad are fully here. And so what, oh, I don't know what to do. Well, my wife's the smoke detector in my life. I don't know about you. She always knows what's going on before it happens. And she can point, hey, I think there's some smoke here. It could be a fire if you're not careful. She's always been that in our marriage. She can always detect what's going on before it happens. And, and so I thought, I'm going to go to her. And I'm just going to tell her, like, hey, this is what happened. And so I, I walk in. She can see I've been crying. And she's just like, what's going on? And I pulled her aside and I told her. This isn't typical. Like my wife grew up as a preacher's kid. To go on vacation and disconnect, it's a big deal. She looked right at me. She said, let's go to the Atlanta airport. You need to get back there. So that's what we did, right? We all huddled up. We prayed. We drove over to the airport. I got on a flight right away back to Indiana to be with Andrew and his mom, people that I love dearly. I needed to be there with them. They needed me to be there. I had to give up the freedom of going on this trip for the benefit of their growth in that moment. I needed to be there, and my family saw that, and it was beautiful. It was incredible. Why? Because discipline precedes joy. The more you live it, the more you understand the joy of giving up what is important to you for the benefit of other people. Well, I fly into Indianapolis, and Don Lamb picks me up. And this is normally, I I called Don. I told him what was going on. This is October. I don't know. Don's a farmer. People get busy around that time of the year, I guess. Uh, But he dropped what he was doing, and he comes and picks me up. Now, normally, he would have scolded me because he's had to do that a lot, (laughs) a lot. And he would have said, what are you doing? You You need to be, but he didn't. He knew it. He knew the relationship. I'd leaned into this relationship. I had this friendship, and he said, what do you need? He'd given up his time in the fields, came out, got me there, got me back. I flew back to Orlando, met up with my family. And what's taken place between me and my friend and his family since that moment when they saw what I was willing to do and what my family was willing to give up skyrocketed that relationship beyond belief. I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but I can promise you this. As you go out this week, as you leave this place, you're going to have an opportunity. You're going to have an opportunity where you have to sit back and evaluate, sure, I have freedom to do this, but what? What is best for this person who doesn't know Jesus or does to get closer to him than they were before? And you're going to have some decisions to make. You can't do that on your own. You need the Holy Spirit living in you. You need God's word. You need your Christian community to help you make those decisions, to sacrifice your freedoms for the sake of his kingdom. That choice, the choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your guidance through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, we thank you that when we're willing, man, you do some beautiful things, and and we need you. God, as a church family, we need to be a group of people that live sacrificially for the sake of your kingdom, but we can't do that on our own. We don't have what it takes without you. So this week, as times do get tougher and decisions become Moments where we feel torn, would you give us the ability through the Holy Spirit and in our time in your word to rightly order the loves of our heart, to put things under the lordship of Jesus so that in that moment we might be able to choose what is important over what is urgent. We might be able to see the work that you're doing through the advancement of your kingdom in our lives. We ask you for this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.